Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is James and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question and answer session. Instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the medical director and senior consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the medical director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may begin. Thank you. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, my name is Dr. Shute and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on May 21st. The article for that call will be The Effects of Lowering Targets for Blood Pressure and LDL Cholesterol and Atherosclerosis in Diabetes, uh, the SANS Randomized Trial, and the guest authors will be Dr. Barbara Howard and Williams J James Howard. Please join us. Many organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured, article, uh, featured author is Dr. Laura Svetke, first author of the article, Comparisons of Strategies for Sustaining Weight Loss, the Weight Loss Maintenance Randomized Control Trial, published in the March 21st issue of JAMA. Dr. Svetke is Professor of Medicine at Duke University Medical Center, Director of the Duke Hypertension Center, and Director of Clinical Research at the Sarah W. Stedman Nutrition and Metabolism Center. She is also the Vice Chair for Faculty Development and Diversity in the Department of Medicine. Her research focuses on nutritional and other lifestyle approaches to the prevention and treatment of hypertension. In 2001, she and colleagues published the landmark DASH study found in the New England Journal in 1988 demonstrating that a healthy dietary pattern, uh, rich, in, rich in fruits and vegetables, can lower blood pressure as much as antihypertensive medication. Subsequent research has focused on real-world implementation of DASH and using DASH to promote healthy weight loss. In addition, Dr. Svetke is developing and testing strategies for incorporating lifestyle counseling into primary care practices. And we are very, very fortunate to have Dr. Svetke with us. Dr. Svetke, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. And as a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Svetke's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from an author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Svetke and I will help you translate what's in the paper into changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Dr. Svetke will spend about 10 minutes or 15 minutes summarizing her findings. I will then take about five minutes to draw out some of the implications for re real-world practice and set the stage for your comments. 
Uh, your participation in these calls is extremely important. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others in the community the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation in terms of questions uh, and experiences will be very helpful to the call. There are approximately 90 phone lines connected to the call at this time, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some of the members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming, audio, or as podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Svetke, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Svetke. Hi, thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, just want to uh, run through the background for this study, which should be um, pretty apparent to everybody that we're in the middle of an obesity epidemic in the United States. Uh, obesity affects over 60% of adults in America and is considered uh, a major cause of preventable morbidity and mortality. In fact, the second leading cause of preventable death in this country, the first leading cause, of course, being smoking. Um, and we know that weight loss is possible, not easy, but possible, um, and yet among people who lose weight, regain is very, very common. And so um, we felt that there was a critical need for practical, affordable, effective strategies for long-term weight loss maintenance. Um, we were interested in um, uh, addressing this question in high-risk people who are overweight and obese um, because uh, any strategy that would um, lower, uh, w that would effectively lead to long-term weight loss maintenance would um, have particular benefits, clinical benefits for people who already had cardiovascular risk factors. In addition, we wanted to be sure that we were focusing on a very diverse population in terms of age, gender, and race because the obesity epidemic is really ubiquitous in the population and so treatments should uh, ideally be effective across the board. Um, we conducted the study in two phases. Phase one was an uh, intensive behavioral weight loss intervention, and I'll describe the interventions more in just a few minutes. And everybody, uh, everybody was given this weight loss intervention, which lasted about six months. The goal of that intervention was to lose at least four kilograms, um, not quite 10 pounds. And those who did not achieve that goal at the end of the six months of phase one were then um, dismissed from the study. We didn't have further contact with them. But the folks who did lose at least four kilograms then went on to phase two, which was the experimental part of the study. That's where they were randomized into one of three uh, maintenance interventions. And again, I'll describe those in a minute. Um, the maintenance phase, phase two, lasted for 30 months. Um, we uh, did measurements at the beginning before they entered phase one, the weight loss phase, um, at the time of randomization, at, which is the beginning of phase two, and then every six months during phase two. And we were particularly interested in weight change, but there were other um, variables that we were looking at as well. The uh, to be eligible for this study, um, participants had to be at least 25 years of age. They had to be overweight or obese based on body mass index measurements. 
Um, I mentioned that we were focusing on a high-risk population. We, def we um, uh, targeted high-risk participants by requiring that, they, that participants be on medication for high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, or both. But we excluded patients who had diabetes or who had had a recent cardiovascular event. Um, because of the nature of the interventions, which I'm going to describe in a minute, we also require that people have phone and Internet access to be eligible for this study. Um, the interventions, both phase one and phase two, involved lifestyle goals and behavior change tools. The lifestyle goals were reducing calorie intake, following the DASH dietary pattern, uh, increasing moderate physical activity, moderate being the equivalent of a brisk walk, um, and, in, and focusing on lifestyle change rather than going on a diet. In phase one, an, a lifestyle goal was to lose one to two pounds per week, and in phase two, the goal was to either maintain that weight loss or to lose more. And the behavior change tools that we used were things that are pretty much common sense, but um, we, uh, there's a little bit of jargon associated with the common sense. So self-monitoring, keeping track of your calories and what you're eating and your exercise and your weight, uh, goal setting, setting realistic and achievable goals, relapse prevention, which basically means planning ahead, accountability, uh, social support, and uh, enhancing motivation. So those were the behavior change tools that we built into both the phase one and the phase two intervention. The phase one weight loss intervention um, uh, incorporated those goals and tools through 20 weekly group sessions, about 20 to 25 participants met with a trained interventionist. These were dietitians or behavioral counselors um, who were trained by the uh, study personnel to deliver pretty much the same intervention each time and at each of the sites that were in the study. Um, but And they were also trained on motivational counseling. And these group sessions were really wonderful to watch because very quickly what happened was that the group members started helping each other and the interventionist became more or less a facilitator. And um, our impression was that the, the group dynamic was really a critical feature in how successful these, uh, this phase one weight loss was. Um, in phase two, uh, the, ones, the participants who lost at least four kilograms in phase one were randomized to one of three maintenance group. Uh, a third of them were randomized to the self-directed group, which is basically our control group. At the end of phase one, they got some advice and some information, but thereafter we did not have contact with them other than to get the study measurements. Uh, a third were randomized to what we call the personal contact group, which continued to have contact with this interventionist on a monthly basis, but it was one-to-one, -one, and most of the time it was through a brief brief phone conversation. Um, and then the uh, final third were randomized to the interactive technology group in which those participants had unlimited access to a, a specially designed interactive website. We asked them to log on um, at least weekly, but they could log on as, as often or as uh, unoften as they wanted to. And we tried in both the personal contact and the interactive technology interventions to build in those behavioral tools and lifestyle goals that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, so the study participants who entered uh, phase one, there were 1,685 of them, 
And of that group, 61% or 1,032 went on to be randomized. Um, that group lost, the, the, the initial group of all the people who entered phase one, the average weight loss was about 5.8 kilograms um, multiplied by 2.2 to get pounds. Uh, and overall, about 68% lost the required four kilograms to go on to phase two. For various re reasons, only 61% of them uh, actually did go on to be randomized. Uh, and uh, I mentioned that we were striving for a diverse study population. 38% of those randomized were African-American. 63% were women. Um, we had good uh, adherence and follow-up in phase two in the personal contact group where they had that monthly phone and occasional face-to-face -face contact with the interventionist. 91% uh, of those contacts were completed in the interactive technology intervention, uh, in, in that intervention where we asked the participants to log on once a week. They did, in fact, log on an average of once a week all the way through to the end of phase two, well, through that entire 30-month period. And we had final weight measurement uh, on 94% of the participants who were randomized. So if we look at the results, if, if we just focus on the group that were randomized into phase two, that 1,032 that were randomized into the maintenance phase, um, their weight loss during the weight loss phase, phase one, was an average of eight and a half kilograms with a range of four to 30 kilograms. There were people who lost 30 kilograms during that first six months. If we then look at the, the self-directed control group, what happened to them after randomization, they regained weight, not surprising. Um, they regained an average of five and a half kilos, but they ended up at the end of the study 2.9 kilos less than where they started at the very beginning before phase one. So they maintained 2.9 kilograms of weight loss. In the personal contact group with the monthly phone and occasional face-to-face -face contacts, um, the weight regain during phase two was less. Um, at every time point, so that at the end of the study, they had regained one and a half kilos less than the control group. Uh, this is not a huge difference, but it is a statistically significant difference, and, and I would argue that it's a clinically significant difference. Um, we know that, uh, for instance, a kilo of weight loss leads to about a millimeter or two of reduction in systolic blood pressure on average, and we know that from the uh, Diabetes Prevention Program study that a kilo of weight loss reduces the incidence of diabetes by about 16%. So small amounts of weight loss can have big impact. Um, if we look at the uh, um, interactive technology group, again, we see weight regain, less regain um, than the control group all the way through 24 months of the study, but by the 30th month, there was no difference between the control group and the interactive technology group. Um, one thing that's uh, interesting is that overall, regardless of which treatment group they were randomized to, uh, most people ended the study weighing less than they did when they started. 71% ended up at a lower weight than when they started phase one. And if we think of 5% uh, weight loss as something that most people would agree is clinically significant, Overall, about 37% uh, ended up 5%, weighing 5% less than they did when they started the study to begin with. And, and that proportion was higher in the personal contact group than in the other groups, but even without further intervention, um, it was pretty high.
Um, one of the things to bear in mind when thinking about this study is that we only included people who had successfully lost weight to begin with. People had to lose weight in phase one to be randomized into the test of the maintenance strategies, but in a way that was the whole point of the study was to test the maintenance strategies, so there has to be something to maintain. Um, another thing to bear in mind is that we followed these folks for a total of three years, and when we think about long-term weight loss maintenance, that's probably not long enough. Um, but despite that, this was the largest, longest, and most diverse uh, trial ever to test, specifically test maintenance strategies. Um, and what we conclude from the study is that, number one, weight loss can be achieved. Uh, it can be sustained even without further intervention. That these maintenance interventions that we tested had modest additional effects um, and that uh, um, there needs to be really uh, larger effects before we think about implementing the phase two interventions in, um, in practice or in health systems. Um, but certainly, uh, this moves us in that direction. Um, when we think about sort of what this means for people in primary care practice, it's a little bit uh, a little bit hard to translate this into um, your interaction with a patient. Most of us in practice cannot offer a phase one intervention, let alone a phase two intervention. Um, the resources are generally not available. But we can take some of the principles and the tools that we built into phase one and phase two interventions and reinforce them with our patients. There's, there's evidence that what the physician says really has an impact on the extent to which patients um, adopt lifestyle modification recommendations. Um, so I would say for the primary care physician, um, myself included, to uh, remind patients of, of the information that, that DASH lowers blood pressure, that it can be adapted for weight loss, that weight loss lowers blood pressure, prevents hypertension, prevents diabetes, um, that physical activity uh, alone is not enough, but in the context of a healthy dietary pattern and reduced calorie intake can promote weight loss and these other health benefits, and and to to reinforce the use of the behavioral tools to encourage our patients to keep track of their weight, keep track of what they're eating, count calories, um, and uh, keep track of portion sizes to um, uh, make uh, plans, have uh, specific goals and action plans for achieving those goals, to get social support where they can get it, uh, to plan ahead, and to focus on why, uh, why they want to lose weight in the first place, to have an internal motivation rather than trying to please their doctor or anybody else. Well, Dr. Svetke, thank you very much for that summary and thank you for that wonderful work. Um, now I want to turn our conversation from the research itself to talk a little bit about what your research suggests that we should do difference in clinical practice. And I think you addressed those some, but I'd like to drill down a little bit in terms of what we can do in our practices and then begin to hear from uh, listeners on the line uh, their conclusions or their thoughts about how to translate it. Clearly in primary care practice, weight management is one of the very important challenges we face. And, and I would agree with you that many primary care physicians uh, and other practitioners feel really ill-equipped to help our patients. Um, what I heard from your, or what I took away from your study 
is that some sort of ongoing regular contact with our patients probably is very valuable in helping them change behaviors in the first place and then certainly to, to sustain those behavioral changes over time. Uh, and I'm specifically curious if any um, any of you on the lines have made changes in your practice to accomplish things like that. So I, I guess I'd like to turn it now over to the callers. Uh, and uh, James, do you want to go ahead and set up the conversation, please? Thank you, sir. We'd now like to begin our question and answer session. If you do have a question, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. Please keep in mind that if you are on a speakerphone, you may need to pick up your handset first before pressing the numbers. Again, if you do have a question, please press star then one. Well, great. Well, thank you, James. Um, and Laura, let me go ahead and ask the first question. Have you made any specific changes in your primary care practice based on the information uh, that you have learned either from the DASH study or from this particular study? Well, I spend a fair amount of time uh, with my patients. I, I have an unusual kind of primary care practice because I focus mainly on hypertension. People know that I'm interested in lifestyle modifications, so it's it's not unusual for people to come to me specifically for that. But I, in any case, regardless of who I'm seeing, I spend um, a, a good part of the visit making sure that they're familiar with DASH and there are certainly written materials available from the NHLBI website and elsewhere, um, and uh, providing a little bit of information about how powerful these effects can be and talk a little bit about what their um, usual diet and exercise habits are and um, help strategize a little bit about making changes. And um, this may take more time than, than most people have, but it's not quite as time-consuming as you might think. So I'll ask people to just give me a 24-hour diet recall. What did you eat for breakfast this morning, dinner last night, lunch yesterday? What did you have between meals? And um, uh, and just point out where they might make some substitutions or ask them to think about where they might make some substitutions um, to increase um, fruits and vegetables, for instance, to reduce portion size, et cetera. Most people who are overweight or obese kind of know something about where their problem is, whether it's what they're eating or how much they're eating or when they're eating or um, uh, that kind of stuff. I, I I find that people are very focused on the diet composition. Should I be eating more carbohydrates, less carbohydrates? And I really tend to, um, uh, I won't say discount, but I think it's really um, a less important factor in weight control than uh, calories, so I'll, I'll encourage people to focus on that. Got it. So, so you try to refocus them from diet composition to quantity, basically. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. And, and you know, point out the, the calories in, calories out, the physics of it, and um, and just, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, try and help them move to the next stage of taking action. Great. Thank you, Dr. Svetke. But uh, Jane? if I could... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I just want to add one thing to that. You know, the, the other thing that I do in my practice that may be possible for others is I try and think about the system that I'm in, uh, which is Duke University Medical Center, and think about are there ways that the system can offer, um, for instance, anything like the Phase one intervention. That's clearly not something I can offer, but it, um, it may be seen as a value to the system to offer that to patients. And have you had any success in getting... Duke University, which is obviously a very large and 
perhaps bureaucratic system to implement some of these changes. I am feeling I'm sort of been going through a series of meetings uh, in in that effort, and I'm feeling um, cautiously optimistic. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for those comments, James. I'd like to go to our callers now. Do we have any questions in the queue? Yes, we do, sir. We have one caller in queue, and the question comes from Catherine Schneider of Bill College of Medicine in Houston. Please proceed with your question. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's actually Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and I'm with the uh, Center for Collaborative and Interactive Technologies, um, which does uh, uh, which works with our CME office for educating physicians. And um, I thought that your paper was uh, uh, wonderfully provocative, um, uh, but for some uh, different sorts of reasons. Um, I've got three questions that are related to the, um, the, the participants that were randomized into the intera uh, interactive technology-based intervention. Uh, the first was, um, was that custom built for you and for this? Um, or is it something that is available for clinicians to use or direct okay. their patients to? Okay. Let's, shall we take these one at a time? Uh, yeah. Well, actually... Or, or do yeah, you want to put them all out there together? Well, I'll, let, I'll ask the other uh, two. Um, right. I was curious about the extent to which the bulletin board was used um, because that does create a social, social community. And what I'm thinking about is for the primary care provider who doesn't have the ability to um, provide a wide range of resources, um, this, this can be an interesting solution for them, um, assuming that there is a community that's active um, for the individual to interact with. Um, of course, you lose the, the, per, the, the highly personal um, uh, interaction that comes with your clinician, but it can be a huge um, uh, support in between. Um, so the question was the bulletin board. The second was, or that was the second question. The first was the availability. But the third question was, um, did you have an opportunity to do any kind of sub-analysis to understand whether individuals who used the interactive tool lost more weight or performed better than those who used it less frequently? Obviously, this is a randomized trial, so you might have had individuals in there that would not have had, who on their own would not have chosen to use a, uh, an Internet-based tool for the purposes of assisting them in weight loss. And so I'm just curious if there was any other sort of measure that you might have been able to extract out of there that would have given you better information and might have pointed you in a direction that might have been helpful. Great. Thank you very much for your question. So uh, to briefly summarize three questions, one is the uh, technology-based tool available for use by others. Uh, Two, did you, was using a bulletin board or some mechanism of social networking online uh, used as part of the in intervention? And third, uh, if there was a correlation between frequency of use of the online resource and results. Dr. Svetke? Sure. So this uh, website was, in fact, custom-built by um, this collaborative research group, but it was built with dissemination in mind, so that if we had seen... Um, a bigger effect or a more long-lasting effect of the intervention that could have been packaged and disseminated. It, it's not available um, publicly at this point. The um, bulletin board, uh, the, the, of course, the reason we had the bulletin board was to, to uh, enhance social support, as you suggest, and uh, that issue as well as how whether frequent use was uh, associated with better weight loss maintenance than less frequent use, those are questions that we're investigating right now. 
um, and, and even more so, what is it uh, that distinguishes the folks who did well in terms of weight loss maintenance in the IT group compared to those who didn't do quite so well? And uh, see if we can't pull out factors that, um, that might be particularly worth enhancing, although we may just be identifying, um, you know, people who do well might log on a lot. Whether that's cause and effect is a little hard to tell. Um, I, I think, though, that, that uh, just based on uh, some feedback we've gotten informally from our study participants, I think the reason that the interactive technology intervention sort of lost its potency in the last six months of the study is um, that, it, that it didn't provide sufficient social support. I think there needs to be something more human uh, involved, and, and so perhaps the Internet alone is not going to be sufficient. There may need to be some combination of technology and human contact. Well, that's a very intriguing idea, or perhaps finding ways to use, to, to reshape the technology arm of the intervention so it does provide more contact or more humanness, if you will. And it could so certainly have been more responsive, more interactive, more personalized. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that could be done with the technology, and, and we remain very interested in that, of course, because that is the hope for wide dissemination, any kind of um, weight loss maintenance intervention that has to reach 60% of the population has got to be pretty affordable. Right, that's re readily scalable in the, in the way exactly. that the other arm certainly is not. And certainly with the shifting demographic, there will be more and more, um, a greater and greater percent of the population will be very comfortable with the Internet. And that's, you know, w being one of their primary ways of communicating. So thank you very much for the question. Uh, James, let's go ahead to the next caller, please. Thank you, sir. And our next question comes from Terrence Duke of 377 Medical Group. Please proceed with your question. <coughs> excuse me. Yes, I wanted to commend. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> I wanted to commend the authors, uh, all of them, on this uh, useful study. I have a question relating to uh, exercise. Since you have three groups, would you be able to? Um, discuss a little bit about the relationship and the nature of the type of exercise that were being used in these three groups. Great. Thank you very much for that clarification. Um, thank you for the question. We um, encouraged participants in all three groups, as well as in phase one, to engage in moderate physical activity, meaning the equivalent of a brisk walk. In phase one, during weight loss, we encouraged them to try and get to 180 minutes per week, and we actually encouraged them to increase that in phase two because of some observational studies that would suggest that um, long-term weight loss maintenance uh, is associated with more, more physical activity. Um, we presented at the Society of Behavioral Medicine um, a week or so ago a paper looking at predictors of long-term weight loss maintenance, fully expecting that the physical activity during phase two would be strongly associated with maintenance of weight loss, regardless of which treatment group they were in, and we found that it was not. And so either folks reached um, a level of physical activity by the end of phase one that they sustained in phase two, and therefore we didn't see any further changes in phase two, or this relationship between physical activity and sustained weight loss may not, in fact, uh, be true, or at least not in this study, and we're looking at that further right now. 
Thank you, Dr. Specky. Did you look at all at the type of activity uh, that individuals were doing and correlate that with the results? Um, we have not done that. Um, we measured physical activity using an accelerometer, which is a little device that, that measures, essentially measures forward movement, and it could, it, it would record um, kind of the frequency. So if you were running, you'd have a higher frequency of signal than if you were walking. Um, and so we could look at intensity of exercise. We couldn't look at, say, running versus biking or something like that. Um, we did have folks record for us uh, what they did just in a, in a questionnaire, but we considered that information quite a bit less reliable than this objective measure. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we are looking at now is um, exercise or, or movement on this accelerometer that occurred in bouts. In other words, if you, you know, get up and walk from your desk to your window, that's going to get recorded as movement, but it's not necessarily you getting on a treadmill and exercising for half an hour. So if we look at exercise that occurs in bouts of a certain number of minutes at a time, we think that's capturing exercise rather than just day-to-day -day movement. Just day-to-day -day movement. Yeah. Great. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, James, can we go to our next caller, please? Yes, sir. Let's go to the next question, and it comes from Lori Enriquez from Independent Blue Cross. Please receive your question. Hi. Yes, I'd like to, um, first of all, thank you for um, joining in this forum today. Um, I am from Philadelphia. I'm a registered dietitian, and I think that um, all of your um, interventions show some promise from my experience. Um, certainly a couple questions that I had were, um, one, I know it wasn't exactly objective of the study, but was there any look into, um, maybe for a future study or if not, any change in body composition or other change in other health parameters such as blood pressure, lipid uh, profile versus just weight, although I know weight is important as well, but there might have been some positive changes even with the you know, weights being slightly different uh, in terms of how much they kept off in the different intervention groups. That's my first question. Okay, go ahead, Dr. Svetke. Um, We looked in a subset at Duke, maybe about 50 people in the study who had body composition measured both by DEXA and by BODPOD um, at the beginning, middle, and end of the study. And, and as you'd expect, the uh, weight loss was associated with reduction in both lean and subcutaneous, I mean, um, subcutaneous and visceral fat. Um, and uh, and the, that reduction was proportional to the amount of weight loss. Um, we uh, are in the process of analyzing data related to blood pressure and lipids, so we will have that information. But the, you know, there's there's really a lot of information that that uh, leads us to expect that the weight loss will lead to reduction in blood pressure, reduction in lipids, reduc reduction in fasting blood sugar, um, and uh, you know, there was nothing unusual about the diet composition or any other aspect of the intervention that we would expect there to be any different effect of weight loss on these health parameters. Sure. Okay. Yes, I think that would be interesting to see if, if there was any statistic significantly different among the three groups uh, in those uh, areas. Um, another question I had is related to, um, I think that certainly having uh, most people who are Another way that they look at it is are people who are people that are successful at keeping their weight off, and one of the common themes that seems to appear is 
weighing themselves frequently and also kind of self-monitoring what, what they consume. And I was wondering if there was any subjective data from the participants on, um, you know, kind of reflection on why they think maybe they weren't able to keep all of the initial weight loss off, um, you know, what some of their barriers were uh, for not maybe keeping all of the initial weight loss and regaining some of it throughout the time. Great. Yep. Thank you, Lori. So so the question, just to clarify, is were there barriers identified um, to help us understand who wasn't successful? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, first of all, with the regard to frequent weighing, the, the attention in the weight loss and dietary community on frequent weighing sort of happened while this study was going on, and, and we incorporated that idea into our intervention by um, increasing our um, emphasis on frequent weighing with the participants. Unfortunately, we weren't measuring that parameter as we were going along. We asked uh, people to measure it sort of uh, retrospectively, um, and, and we'll, you know, who knows whether that'll be really a good measure of how often they actually were weighing themselves. We did keep track of how often people were keeping food records, and we'll be able to look at that. And in that Society of Behavioral Medicine uh, paper that I mentioned that we presented um, looking at predictors of success, it did look like self-monitoring was a predictor of uh, successful weight loss maintenance. We don't, um, we don't have any uh, exit interviews or focus groups or subjective information that would help us um, get at some of those qualitative things, uh, differences between those who succeeded and those who were less successful at maintaining their weight loss. Um, but we do have some some other information about um, behavior, and and we're exploring that further. And you know, we ask questionnaires about things like social support and self-efficacy and depression and um, some psychosocial variables that we'll be able to compare between treatment groups and also between those who were more successful and less successful within a treatment group. Thank you, Dr. Spetke. We look forward to that subgroup analysis. Did I address your question, Lori? Oh, yes, I think that was um, that was great. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for calling. James, next caller, please. Thank you, sir. And our next question comes from Norman Charney from Healthcare for the 21st Century. Please proceed with your question. Hi. <coughs> it's an extremely important uh, study that, that you did, and, and we look at um, obesity as a as a disease, and we, we handle it through a disease management uh, process. And one of the important aspects of disease management is uh, accessing community resources. And as I'm sure everybody knows, that uh, no matter how much education you provide patients and no matter how much information you provide for them and encouragement, we all go out into the community and we're uh, bombarded by uh, fast food restaurants, uh, commercials on TV, other things, uh, and it would be important to get some kind of community support for these projects so when, when our patients go out into, this, into the community, they have access to information that's readily available for, for them to use uh, immediately. So I, I just want to know, have you looked into accessing any community resources? What community resources did you look at? and what's available, and do you have any plans to move forward with that aspect of uh, controlling obesity? Great, Norman. Thank you, because that's a wonderful question. So to summarize, really, what about the environment? What about the community? Um, how 
Uh, did Dr. Svetke link her study participants to that, or perhaps what should we be doing? So, Dr. Yeah, Svetke. really important issue, and I, I guess I would say that our approach in this study, um, like most weight loss programs commercially available as well as in the research community, kind of was um, trying to arm these participants against the environment. And, <laughs> right, and and I don't think that it's um, that these goals are mutually exclusive. I think at the same time we need to be figuring out how to make the environment um, more conducive to making healthy choices in terms of diet and exercise. And I, I kind of think that that's in a whole other ballpark of policy. Um, uh, you know, there are um, sort of uh, community pressures to uh, to you know make it safer to walk or create sidewalks, bike bike paths, that kind of thing to um, provide healthier choices in restaurants and and in uh, grocery stores. And I think we've seen some sort of uh, fairly glacial movement in that direction, um, but uh, I'm not exactly sure how individuals in a weight loss program could go into the community and um, find support uh, in the environment for these changes. So we kind of need to arm them to resist the environmental forces. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. Svetke. Uh, Norman, do you have any examples uh, from your world about how that's been done effectively, that is, uh, linking participants in weight loss programs to resources in the community that will increase their chances of success? Yeah, for example, uh, I'm, I'm from the Seattle area, and we have Starbucks, and we have a, a, we can have a great amount of influence with Starbucks to put in some healthy foods in their uh, establishment, and they do have some healthy salads. We can also go to the other fast food uh, chains and, and do the same thing. Uh, we have uh, the availability of uh, Whole Foods Market. I don't know whether you're familiar with that entity, but they're always interested in uh, exploring uh, you know, healthy parameters and uh, organic foods. And we also have a, an organic foods grocer called PCC uh, that also engages in that and that we could work with. So there's a lot of opportunity uh, to do things like that, at least in, in our community in Seattle. Now, I'm not saying that it's been done effectively, but it's been done to the point where if somebody that's looking at or is involved in a program of, of reducing weight can go into it, it, they know if they go into Starbucks, there are some healthy salads they could get. They don't have to have the, <laughs> the, the gorgeous-looking cakes that are on display. They can have right. something healthy. Or if you go into Whole Foods Market, for example, they have uh, prepared foods where you can have lunch there. So you can have, you know, the the uh, vegetarian diet which uh, with some dishes that, you know, it, it doesn't taste like grass. It tastes like really terrible good stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 Norman, you've given us a couple examples of how perhaps we can get engaged on influencing policy. Uh, right. In your example, specifically going to business entities uh, who are invested either because it's good for their bottom line or it's good for the Absolutely. community in making changes, and then once you've got some resources, then perhaps we educate our patients a little bit about places they can go and eat out and get a delicious, healthy meal. Right. Or do we provide um, you know, maps of the bike lanes in their community as part of the intervention to them? Well, yes, that's, that's, that's true, too. And, and we also... 
work with the with the county and the state health departments uh, who are on similar programs so that we kind of coordinated the public-private uh, uh, network to make this happen. Because yeah. you get the politicians involved, things will happen. So yeah, can I no. ask you a question, Norman? Yeah. Uh, is it, uh, what's your opinion when we um, try to put pressure on fast food industry or or even a place like Starbucks, um, is there a business case to be made for them, or are we simply relying on their largesse or their uh, desire to have better PR? Uh, actually, both. There is a there is a bottom line available. Uh, healthy food doesn't have to be uh, a nonprofit entity. In fact, they can stimulate the uh, entry of people who are on diets and get a get a, a a bigger a lot of a lot more business as a consequence of of catering to this aspect plus disseminating information about what we should and what we shouldn't eat disseminating information about the fact there's a lot of processed foods that's served that is actually poisoning uh America and also helping create some of this obesity you know stuff with a lot of extra sugar in it stuff with uh different kinds of fats so uh, through education and through uh, uh, actually creating, a, you, you're perfectly right, you need to have a business case. As much as people want to be altruistic, they still need to run their business. And as you know, for the way the market is these days, you've you got to come out with a positive line, otherwise your, your shareholders are going to be on your head. So there is a business case for this, and uh, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm sure if somebody wanted me to create one, I could create one. Well, and Norman, I'm sure the work's been done. There are, you know, yeah. people people doing strategic planning in these corporations with lots of resources um, and, and, and lots of money. So I would assume they know what they're doing. But thank you very much for the question and the comment, and, and certainly both in terms of our ability or perhaps even our duty to try and influence public policy. And at the same time, we can help support our patients by linking them to with some of these community resources. Absolutely, and that takes the pressure off the doctor who doesn't have time to do all this stuff. He can at least get people to go into the community and learn some of it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I think we've got time probably for one more question. James, can you uh, hook us up to our next caller, please? Thank you, and our next question comes from Allison Fernald from Ed Coast Hospital. Please proceed your question. I'm wondering how many practitioners did you have making the personal contacts and approximately how long was the average follow-up phone or personal contact? Great. Thank you, Allison. So how many practitioners, how long was the contact, and if I may add, uh, what were their skill sets or what were their qualifications? Dr. Okay. Svetke? Um, so the, the study was conducted at four sites, um, and each site had about uh, between Two and four interventionists who were making these, doing these personal contact um, uh, uh, phone calls. The phone calls were maybe about 10 to 15 minutes each, and the face-to-face, and they were uh, monthly for nine months of the year, and then for three months of the year, they were face-to-face contacts, which um, lasted about an hour, half an hour to an hour. The interventionists themselves were, I would say, the majority were. Um, registered dietitians or people with nutritional counseling background, and um, uh, a little less than half were people with uh, psych, psych counseling or other kind of behavioral counseling kind of training. And they all were trained in motivational counseling through the study itself. 
Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Uh, James, uh, next question, please. Our next question comes from Susan Tantoris from Independent Blue Cross. Please receive your question. Yes. Um, thank you for the opportunity to um, know about the uh, benefits of, of these, uh, of these uh, trials. I have a question regarding, I come from a health plan, and wondering whether uh, participants uh, were enrolled in health plans that provided nutrition counseling and or fitness reimbursements, and how this may have impacted um, if this was considered uh, with regards to the randomization into the three groups. Great question. Thank you very much. So, so number one, were these individuals involved in getting resources from their health plans, and was there any kind of incentive involved? Uh, Dr. Svetke. Uh, there was no formal relationship between the study and any uh, health plan, and uh, at the same time, we did not prohibit people from seeking help uh, elsewhere, although we, um, it, uh, if somebody in the study had, for instance, bariatric surgery, that would disqualify them, but they were free to, to make use of whatever their health plan offered. Um, I have to admit, in looking into this, uh, at least in our area in Durham, North Carolina, um, the health plans don't offer anything of the anything like the intensity that we were offering in the study. Um, so even if people were making use of the health plans, it it was uh, uh, fairly minor activity compared to what they were doing in the study. Great, thank you. And were you are you aware either anecdotally or did you track this as one of the data points about any incentives available to the participants? Um, for them to join the study, an incentive to join the study, or uh, or or more incentives to meet behavioral targets, either oh, weight I loss see. targets or behavioral targets. Um, I'm not aware of any. Yeah, and Great. you know the largest employer in our area is Duke University, and so. Um, uh, Chances are the majority of our study participants were employees at the university, and and I know there's no incentive plan like that here. Yeah, boy, that would be great research to do, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. well, you know, seeing uh, and certainly what the business case could be around some sort of uh, incentive, uh, certainly by employers would be the right place to look for that to uh, encourage certain kind of uh, behavior change. Yeah, yeah, so. I'd love to hear any ideas about uh, incentives for the employees as well as for the employer to to um, encourage healthy behavior and weight control. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, great. James, let's go ahead and take one more question, please. Okay. And our next question comes from Julie Gardy from eSource. Please proceed with your question. Uh, yeah, I had a question. Um, I know that uh, monitoring has, you know, been proven to help, continued monitoring um, has been proven to help in other fields like addiction and such. So I was wondering how much you think the difference would be between the interactive technology group and the phone call group um, of that the interactive technology would be relying upon the participant to, you know, get online and do it, and however much they get from that is on them versus personal contact. And so with an option for providers for a lower cost alternative to personal contact be some kind of automatic generation of a phone call or an email by an automated system that would give them reminders or something like that so that Great. it would be self-motivated? 
So, so the question is, um, did you look at the value of some sort of automated reminder pushed out either through email or phone calls to help check in with the patient? Great. Dr. Svetke. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great line of thought. Um, we did try to do something like that with the interactive technology website. When people logged on, they had to enter their weight, and they got um, some feedback based on that. It, it, we could have gone further with that for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea that uh, in clinical practice there could be some electronic connection, for instance, between the patient's scale and your office uh, that then triggered a phone call saying, you know, oops, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that your weight's going up. But, you know, I think that this is uh, tricky business because people don't like um, their homes invaded in that way. They'd have to see it as being of benefit to them before people were willing to allow us to do that kind of electronic monitoring and feedback. But certainly if it helped people to lose weight and keep the weight off, I suspect people would be happy to have that kind of well, automated system. Well, I meant more system. like a, you know, a, a, monthly, um, a monthly call or email that said, you know, have you done this, have you done that, did you think about this, did you think, you know. Yeah, that kind of thing. Not so much of a sensor <laughs> invasion thing. Yeah, some some kind of automated spam is what you're suggesting. Sort of, yes, because <laughs> then it's not self-motivated. You know, it's still an external motivator, an external right. monitor. Um, but you don't have the expense of having it be, you know, necessarily a staff person. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, it it could be very efficient. I just um. Uh, I also think it could be of limited effect because it's external. You know, it's not, uh, it's, it's somebody, you know, it might eventually feel like those fundraising calls you get while you're trying to eat your dinner, right? right. Uh-huh. You know, this might be something I'm actually interested in supporting, but you're annoying me because you're calling me when I didn't ask to be called, so leave me alone, kind of. Right. Great. Well, thank you very much for that question. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions. It has been an absolutely wonderful discussion of the issues brought up by the article. Uh, and uh, Dr. Svetke, I want to thank you for your participation, and I really want to acknowledge all the callers with some very good and thoughtful questions. Uh, Dr. Svetke, we've got about a minute left. Do you have any closing thoughts or comments you'd like to leave us with? Well, just that this is clearly a... a a very uh, important problem that that we're struggling with in society on so many levels, and you know, in the clinic and in our health systems and in society and in in terms of public policy. And um, uh, you know, I think it's just worth continuing to struggle with because the the health benefits, the potential health benefits of uh, helping people maintain healthier weight and eat a healthier or live a healthier lifestyle are just enormous in terms of prevention and treatment of disease. Well, great, and thank you, Dr. Svetke, again for your participation on this call today and for such an enlightening discussion. Uh, before we thank close, you. I want to uh, thank you. And before we close, I want to leave a reminder that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with our next discussion occurring on. May 21st. Uh, the featured guests will be Dr. Barbara Howard and Dr. William James Howard, and they will be discussing uh, the publication, The Effects of Lower Targets for BP and LDL Cholesterol on Atherosclerosis and Diabetes, the SANS Randomized Trial. 
uh, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that improve clinical care. I want to thank you all again for being part of the call, uh, and have a good day. This concludes today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. Thank you, everyone, for joining. You may now disconnect.